for you, Luke chapter 16. Got your Bibles, open them up to Luke 16. And we're going to be reading a, a story found in verses 19 through 31 in just a few moments. But I, I want to begin today, um, and I'm glad they've got, put that, it keeps blinking, put that back up for me. I, I'm glad that they've been flashing the uh, uh, mission statement and, and uh, where'd it go? Did you lose it? Because what I want to talk to you today is a part of the, the mission of our church, but it's also going to become a part of what our new uh, theme is for the year. And I thought I'd set the stage a little bit before I even present in this month uh, what the theme is. I wanted to kind of set the stage a little bit. But as you remember, last week we talked about the fact that uh, our new mission and vision statement has to do with uh, uh, three areas, family ministry, being at the top because it's the very first ministry that God speaks of in His Word. But out of that same thing, as God said, out of family ministry comes the next two. That of, uh, of evangelism, that of telling our children of the gospel of, uh, of salvation, telling them what Jesus has done for us, that He can do for them. Also discipling them, helping them to walk in that so that they can become the followers of Christ that they need to become. So family ministry is a part of evangelism and discipleship, but that doesn't mean that that's the only place that we do um, uh, evangelism and discipleship. So I want to talk about the evangelism perspective of that today and uh, share with you uh, some truths that I hope that you will uh, take to heart. All right, so if you go back, Luke chapter 16, we're not going to read it right now. I want to start by, let me begin by reading you a quote. Uh, I, and this is a quote, and I'm not going to tell you who it is until after I tell it to you. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselyte. Um, I don't respect that, that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and there's a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward? An atheist who think that people shouldn't proselytize uh, and who just say, leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself? How much more do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there would come a certain point where I would tackle you and this is more important than that. Now, what if I told you that those were the words of a man, by the, an atheist by the name of Penn Gillette of the comedy team Penn and, and Teller? An atheist who said that if you believe that there is a heaven and hell, why are you not telling people? Now, I also read about a pastor who was speaking at a National Day of Prayer event on the subject, the crisis that we have in America. He spoke about the leadership crisis, the economic crisis, and the moral crisis, all reasons for earnest prayer. 
After the program was over, a man in his 80s came up to the pastor with tears in his eyes and said, Pastor, I don't really disagree with anything that you said, except I would like to add one thing. That the real crisis in America today is that there are people all around me who are dying and going to hell, and many of whom are my dear friends. May God give us that kind of passion. Today I want to make a biblical case for why we should believe in hell. So if you would, let's stand as we honor the reading of the Word. I want to read a story to you that Jesus gave us in Luke chapter 16, in verses 19 through 31. Starting in verse 19, he says, There was a certain man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And deserving to be fed with the, or desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeing a, a Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip his tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and now thou art tormented. And besides all this, be between us and you there is a great gall fixed, so that they which would pass from hence unto you cannot, and neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. Then he said, I pray thee, Therefore, Father, that thou would have sent him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that they may testify unto him. Them, least they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father, Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Father, we ask that as we have heard now the reading of your word, the very words of Jesus as he tells this story, a very troubling story, but he had a very pointed story. Lord, a story that should prick each of our hearts should cause each of us to squirm in our seats. And Lord, the, the reason that we're squirming may be different. There may be some that are wondering if that is my destiny. There may be some that are wondering what kind of God would ever do this. There might be those that have received you and said, Thank God that I'm no longer going to that tormented place. Father, whatever it is that we might be feeling, that we might be experiencing in our hearts, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take that and that you would work that and that you would cause us to recognize, O oh Lord, 
that we need to do something with that. Lord, lead us one step closer to where you want us to be today as we listen, Father, to your word, as we understand what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Today I want to begin by making the biblical case for hell by asking you to look at the reality of the passage. There are those who will tell you that this is simply a parable. And parables were never taken or meant to be taken literally. You just got to kind of take them with a grain of salt. But I would say to you that this is not a parable at all. I would say to you that I believe with all my heart that this is not a parable. And, and that rather than that, it is a story that Jesus shares with us. To make my case quickly, I want to just give you a few things that I have found as I've gleaned through the Word of God over the years. First of all, I have come to realize that if you look at all the other parables that Jesus used and told, He doesn't use people's names, nor um, does He uh, tell you who the particular person is in the parable. But in this story... He gives us the man, the beggar's man's name, and tells us it is Lazarus. As if he is saying to us, I knew a man. Secondly, in other parables, there are usually a hidden message for his disciples. Here, the message is in the story. The message is clearly for anybody who reads it. The message of the story is there for all of us. There's no explanation. The truth is the story. Thirdly, parables have one point that they are usually trying to make. This story leaves us with several questions that need to be answered. Now, I could go on, but I told you that I would be quick so we could get into the heart of the message. So that's the three reasons why I believe this is not a parable and it needs to be taken for what Jesus has said and how that we see it in the Scripture. And so for those that think that, you know, um, I, can, I can just take this and, and, and leave it and not worry about it, I don't see that as a possibility in Scripture. But my, my job today, simply as I've put this message together, is to give you a biblical case and reason for believing in hell. So let me try to do that. First of all, the passage is overarching question. The overarching question in this story is, is hell real? Because if it is real, we need to do something about it. We need to do something in our own lives to keep ourselves from going there. We need to do something in the lives of others around us that we know and love to keep them from going there. So the overarching question of this story is we have to decide for ourselves, is hell real or is this just a fictional story that we don't have to take literal? That's the question. So how do we, how do we come to a conclusion? Well, let me share a few things with you. When we come to this question, whether hell is real or not, we simply have two choices to make. First, we can believe that hell is real. 
Very simply, we can make sure that we say, I believe that it is real. I don't have a doubt. I understand there are things that that have made it very, very clear throughout the reading and study of Scripture. I believe that when Jesus spoke about this place, He was speaking truth. The second thing that we have to, decision that we can make is, when we think about this, we have to ask, Is there good evidence for me to believe that hell is real? So the, the, the second question is, or choice is, I don't believe hell to be real. We got one of two choices. Either I believe it's real or I don't believe it's real. I don't know that there's enough evidence to prove that it's real. So what I want to do today with you is, and I'll explain at the end why it's so important for me to do this. So basically, what I want you to look at is which one of those two decisions that we make. I think there is evidence that there are many people sitting in churches today who claim to be Christians who absolutely do not know for sure that hell is real. I believe there's a lot of evidence to that. And I believe that one of the main reasons that I can say that is because there is not a passion within our hearts to see lost people flee from that torment of hell. You see, so it's not just those who, you know, are outside saying we don't believe. I think the problem is more so the problem of inside in what we believe. So there are basically... A few reasons why people don't believe in the reality of hell. Basically, people who deny hell will do it for one of several reasons, or a few of several reasons. First of all, we need to make sure that we understand it makes sense that those that deny hell because they deny the the authenticity of Scripture and the uh, authenticity of Jesus, you know, if they deny God, there's no doubt they're going to deny that there is a hell. But why do other people, why do other people deny there is a hell? Why do some people say, I just can't believe it? Well, let me give you a few reasons. First of all, some argue that hell is not a biblical doctrine. Hell is not a biblical doctrine, that's what they say. All right, now, why do they say that? Some dismiss the words of Jesus about hell because they point to these words about hell being before the cross. Meaning that hell was talked about in the the Old Testament and before Jesus ever went to the cross. So that after the cross, thus they argue that once Christ died upon the cross, there is no need for hell. In other words, what they're saying is that we believe that no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how you live, no matter who you are, everybody gets to go to heaven because Jesus died on the cross. Is that biblical? I don't see it being biblical, but that's their argument. All right, so they, they, they argue that once Christ died on the cross, there is no need for hell. Now, as much as I would like that to be true, the position is filled with holes and inaccuracies. One of my problems this morning that I'm going to face is not making my case, but giving the time to, to give you all of the scriptures that teach uh, uh, about what God has to say 
both in the Old Testament and the New Testament about the place called hell. But I have to ask the question, how much scripture do we really need in order to believe? Do we need one verse that we fully understand that God said, just as we have here, that says that there is a hell that is a real place, a place of torment, a place where those who do not put their faith and trust in Christ go to? Can I give you one verse that God specifically says that and you say, that's enough? Or maybe you're one of those that says, I need more than one verse. I need a dozen verses. I need ten verses. How much scripture is enough for you to believe? I believe that if God says it once, it's enough. If God has uh, the wherewithal to put in His Word something, we need to take that as literal truth. But for those of you that need more Scripture, I will give you more than one. So let's begin when we think about uh, this notion of that hell cease at the existence of the cross. Let me point to the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul says some things, and I think I put them up on the screen there so uh, that you'll have it, so you don't have to, to go look for it. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now let's go to another one before I explain what Paul's saying. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The Apostle Paul did not come on the scene until after the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet the Apostle Paul, with all of this conviction, of all of this feeling, of all of this concern for his fellow Jews, for the need of salvation, passionately says, I would give up my own salvation if I could give them the guarantee of eternal life. So if Paul was so concerned about their salvation, he must have had a concern about the reality of a place called hell. Now, if that's not enough, let's go to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15. And here's what the scripture says there. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. Now, if we were had time today, we could follow through the process of how the hell is tied to that of the lake of fire, that eternal fire, that eternal separation from God. It is very, very difficult, I believe, to argue that the Bible does not speak of hell for those who do not believe in the salvation of Jesus Christ. The second argument... Some argue that hell is not a logical doctrine. It's not a biblical doctrine, but yet we just prove that it is a biblical doctrine, both in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and in the, the letters to the church after Jesus was already ascended into heaven. 
And it also talks about it in the fact that when the rapture of the church, when, when all is said and done and the judgment of God comes on, the books of life are going to be open and God is going to look for your name and my name. And if it's not written in the Lamb's book of life, we are separated from the joys of heaven and we are sent to an eternal lake of fire. Now, to this argument of it's not logical. For many, their argument against hell is more of an argument of logic. Philosophically, they argue that if God is a God of love, and I hear this all the time, the New Testament is all about a God of love, and therefore, if a God of love is a God of love, there cannot be a place called hell. Let me just make a couple of things clear. First of all, the Old Testament points to the fact that the, in the New Testament there was going to be a God who would come and would love the people enough to die on a cross for them. So yes, the New Testament is all about a God who loves us, but it's also about a God who is the same God who said to us in the Old Testament and who says it in the New Testament that love only goes so far, but in order for love to be love, it must have a point that says there is a judgment for those who do not love. Now, let's look at this philosophical argument about this. In this position noted by an atheist way back in the 1920s by the name of Bertrand Russell, the author of an essay that was entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian, Russell said, Christ believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who really profoundly, is really profoundly human can believe in everlasting punishment. Well, seems logical. Seems pretty good from a philosophical point of view. However, this is not only a classic atheist or agnostic argument, but it is also the opinion of so many today in what we might call liberal Christianity. Those who claim to be Christians but yet want to believe that God would not send anybody to hell. Oh, I'm so glad I mentioned that because there's where I want to take you. My friends... I want you to understand that their argument suggests how could a perfect loving God send anyone to hell? Listen to me. Listen to me clearly. God does not send anyone to hell. Well, where do I get that from? All right. We're going to go to a verse. John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. I can't remember if it's on my next slide or not. Can't remember if I gave it to you or not. But here's what it says. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because, listen, we condemned ourselves because we have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Did you hear what the Bible says? What Jesus said? I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come to send them to hell. As a matter of fact, I came to save them from themselves sending themselves to hell. You see, God doesn't send any of us to hell. We send ourselves because He has made a way for us to go the other way. And we have rejected His way and said, I'll try it my way only to fail. So, the argument 
Philosophical argument sounds logical when we think of God as being a God of love. But the problem with that is the God of love has said, I've come to love you and show you the way. But you won't go. In fact, did you know that Jesus himself said that hell was never created for people, but it was created for the the devil and his angels? Beyond that, we cannot fully understand the love of God until we understand the reality of hell. Without the reality of hell, we don't see how much God loved us that he would send his only begotten son to die on the cross for us. When we believe that there's a hell, we know that God must have loved us enough because he wanted to keep us from that torment and he was willing to give the greatest gift of all, his son. Now, I could go on with many more arguments about why people don't believe. Our time is short, and I've got to draw a conclusion. So let me turn the corner and say to you this morning, the next thing that I want us to see is the reality of the conclusion. Jesus helps us to draw the only conclusion from this story. And that conclusion is, there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. So we must choose wisely while there is yet still time. I've talked about it the last couple of weeks. Time is short. The windows of opportunity close. And reality is that we never know who's going to be here tomorrow. And We need to make sure that we say all that we need to say today. We need to take that opportunity. So the passage overarching answer to the overarching question, is hell real? The answer simply is, hell is for real. It's serious. It is for real. And since it is for real, we better understand certain things about hell so that we can make sure that we are moving and doing the right things. The first thing that I want you to see is that hell is literal. It's not a figurative thing. It's not a, um, you know, just a, it's just kind of, you know, just to make you think. No, this is a literal thing that God is talking about. Verse 23 describes hell as a literal place. And then verse 28 uses the word translated from the Greek word for the word place. And the same word that is used in Acts chapter 1 verse 25 to describe that Judas, when he hung himself and died, went to his own place. You see, the scripture backs up what the scripture says we just got to see what it's saying and believe what it is said as i said a moment ago people want to talk about justice or fairness of god when debating the existence of hell oh i just can't see how a loving god could do that what about the fairness to god and writing to us through inspired men to make us believe that there is a literal place called hell, but yet 
when it's all said and done, there really isn't. Surprise. Just kidding. I just wanted to see how you'd react. Is that fair? To cause fear and panic and, and to cause us to think that we've got to make a decision based upon this concept and yet have that concept not be true? That's not fair. But what about fairness to Jesus? The only begotten Son of God who humbled himself and died on a cross for the sins of man so that they could be separated from the torment of hell and be given eternal life. What about the fact that if that were the case, but in the end God said, oh, don't worry about it, everybody gets in. Is that fair to Jesus? After all of what he went through, do you, do you remember the prayer that Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane? On his face before God, sweating drops of blood. Talk about the agony that he was going through and about what he was going to have to go through as he went to the cross for you and for me. Would it be fair to him for God to just say, ah, oh, sorry, Jesus, I'm just going to let everybody in? not fair. God created fairness in that he said there is an opportunity for you to come to me, but you must make the right choice. Furthermore, if you, if you decide that there is not a literal place called hell, you had better apply that same thinking to the place that we call heaven. You see, if there's no hell... There's no heaven, folks. Can't be. So don't think that if you can, you can talk away hell, that, that's okay, because uh, then we'll just talk about heaven, and that's where I'm going anywhere. Mm-mm. If you talk away, explain away hell, you explain away heaven. It's just what it is. So the second thing I want you to see is not only is hell literal, but hell is eternal. Some are going to argue that hell is not really forever. Don't worry, it's okay. You're going to go there for a little while, but we will get you out. I grew up being taught that. Uh, Taught about a place called purgatory. And I grew up being taught that if we lit enough candles, spent enough money, coerced enough priests that we could talk them into pardoning us out of hell. There is nothing in Scripture that I can find that that substantiates, backs up, or even gives hint to that reality. But everything that I find is that hell is forever. That once we are condemned there, once we are sent there because of our rejection of God, that we will spend eternity there. And now listen to what the Scripture says. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Again, i got to ask the question. How much scripture do you need before you believe? You think about that. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Mark chapter 9, and verses 44, 46, 48, all in describing hell talk about this kind of concept. Their worm does not die and the fire does not quench. 
You need to understand that you and I were created in the image of God. And that means something. It means something like this, that we were created eternal. And as we were created in the image of God and we are created eternal, that means that we're going to live eternally somewhere. The question is where? And the Bible only gives us two places. And it only tells us that we're going there for eternity. Once we're there, we can't leave. We're there. As a matter of fact, the story says that. You can't leave there, we can't leave here. This is where we are for eternity. Now, just a couple of more real quickly, if I can keep your attention just for a couple of more minutes. These last two, I, I hope make you squirm. The next one is that hell is horrible. I can't even begin to describe what it means for the horrificness of what the Bible talks about about hell. So I'm just going to give you a few things that the Bible talks about. To say that hell is horrible is an understatement. Torment is the word that grabs our attention. Inquiring minds want to know what hell is like. What have you heard about heaven? What have you heard? Well, I've heard that heaven's a pretty cool place. I've heard that the streets are gold and, and, and life is good and, and there's a, go, a throne there and God is sitting on the throne and, and, and I've heard that there is no more pain. There's no more grief, no more dying, no more crying. It is the best place there is because there is something that is lacking there called sin. Man, when we think about what we've heard about heaven and how good it is and how pleasant it is and how joyful it is, I want you just to reverse that when you think about hell. It's none of those things. It's everything opposite of those things. It is horrible. Let me just give you a few things. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew's gospel says that several times. There's blazing fire. Matthew again. Matthew again talks about the fire of hell. The eternal fire. The unquenchable fire. Mark talks about the tormented with fire and brimstone. Revelation says that there will be an eternal fire of fire of brimstone. It's horrible. Now I'm going to get personal. I asked you this morning in our corporate prayer time, do you know somebody that's lost? I did that for a purpose, for this purpose right here. If you and I don't do something about it, that's exactly where they're going. Horrible place that it is. The last thing that I want you to hear, and this is probably the most disturbing of all, 
Hell is avoidable. Hell is avoidable. The reality of the conclusion is that hell is avoidable. We just have to do something about it. The purpose of Jesus' coming is that hell becomes avoidable. You will either be judged according to your works or his works. If judged according to your works, none of us have a chance. Isaiah says all of our righteousness, all of the good things that we could muster up are but yet filthy rice compared to the righteousness that God demands for our sins. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, listen, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus gave us that promise, that, that verse, simply because he wanted us to know that hell is avoidable. Again, we can't look at this situation without going to that last book of the Bible in Revelation and looking at that chapter 20 that speaks so much about this. Verses 11 through 15, and he says, Then I say, or saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works and by what was written in the books. Then the seas gave up their dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone found not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. My friends, hell is avoidable. But only if we do something now. Coming a time when we can't do anything about it. We must agree with God that you are a sinner and that your sins separate you from the holiest of gods, for He is a holy God. Accept His work on the cross as complete answer for your separation caused by your sin, and then we must surrender to Him for the rest of our lives. Let me conclude by sharing with you today that I have attempted to make a biblical case for believing in hell. And I've left you with one of two choices. Either you must believe it to be true or you must reject it as truth. There is no middle ground. There is no, I'm going to wait and see and then you'll get me out later not happening we need to make a decision one way or another so I believe that every one of us is found in these last three statements that I want to make to you today so if you've fallen asleep wake up and listen up because we're going to find ourselves in one of these three places in my heart's desire my prayer this week in preparing this was that in preparing this that I might be able to take you one step closer to doing what God 
wants you to do and be who God wants you to be. So there are three things. First of all, there is the evident statement that I'm already a believer. Preacher, I already know Jesus as my Savior. But here's the point. If that is true, are you telling others about this horrible place that is avoidable called hell? The second place that we find ourselves in is I'm deciding today that I want to follow this Jesus who came to give his life for me so that I would not have to go to hell but could go to be where he is. I want Jesus as my Savior. I hope there's some here today that may be thinking this way. But yet there's still a third. There is always those and whom are still saying, I still have doubts. I still have questions. And I understand that. I understand that, that maybe I didn't give you enough. Or you have not come enough of the way yet to understand the reality of this. But I hope that you have taken one step further. I hope that you are coming closer to understanding the reality of what God says in His Word is the reality for all of eternity. It does not change. And so in saying those three statements, I'm going to ask, where are you when it comes to making this important eternal decision? Are you saved, but yet you need to get to the point of where you're telling others about the, the, the avoidable, horrible place called hell? Are you ready to receive Jesus? Not because I'm scaring you into salvation. Listen, if I can scare you in, somebody can scare you out. You've got to be coming because you believe God said it in His Word, He meant it, and I want to trust Him. Or maybe you're here today with some questions. Maybe you're here today still saying, I'm not there yet, but I'm glad you shared this with me because now I've got some more things to think about. You know what? Coming to Christ is a process. I don't know where you're at, but He does. And so let Him do His work, and I'll try to do mine. And that's tell you what the Word says. So with saying all of that, I'm going to ask that we all stand to our feet. I'm going to ask that for those of you that raised your hand this morning and said that I know somebody that's lost and you know that you are saved, have you told them about the salvation of Christ? Have you told them about the hell that is avoidable? If not, maybe you need to take that prayer this morning a little further and come to the altar and not just pray for them, but pray for you that you will become the person who will be bold enough, clear enough, willing enough, passionate enough, loving enough, caring enough to go to them and say, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but you would like to. Josh or I or Tom or somebody else would be glad to tell you what the Bible says about how that you can come to know Christ.